0: are here once again in 11FS headquarters in London for episode 7 of Blockchain Insider. As Bitcoin makes new highs, surpassing over $4,000 in the week, we look at the stories behind cryptocurrencies, tokens, distributed ledgers, and today we're breaking down. There's a top cryptocurrency exchange, Bitfinex, reducing its services for US customers, including tokens. I wonder if the SEC had something to do with that. Filecoin overtakes Tezos for the largest crowdfunding ever, topping $250 million. And we speak with investor and token economy co-founder Stefano Bernardi. And later, we speak to Jennifer O'Rourke from the State of Illinois Blockchain Initiative. For now, on with the show. Okay, joining us for the news this week once again is Colin Platt. Colin, how are you, sir? Thanks. Good to be back, Simon. Colin G. Platt is back again. And we have Sarah Feenan from Capco. Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we are fortunate as well to be joined by Stefano Bernardo. Stefano, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. I think we've got a good mix to run through the news with us today. And uh, well, we better get to the first story, Colin, because the first one is Filecoin. Now, if you've been following the blockchain space, um, it was pretty hard to miss this one. Uh, raising $200 million in 60 minutes, ending with a staggering, a staggering $252 million, Filecoin rockets to a record amid tech Issues. So, Colin, let's, let's take a step back here. We've talked for a couple of weeks now about uh, people raising money on tokens and this sort of thing. Um, Filecoin, I guess, is another one of these. But just recap for us what's been happening with the token space for, for a little bit.
1: First, let's talk about what they're doing and why they're doing it uh, and exactly how they did it. So we know about token sales, which, which Simon mentioned a second ago. Um, token sales are, are the way to raise money. In this case, they used Ethereum ethers to do that. What they're trying to do is build the interplanetary file system. Uh, This is kind of like a decentralized cloud server where anybody can contribute to it. uh, And um, they for holding a little bit of your computer open for somebody to put their file on to retrieve it five years down the line, they can uh, pay you a little bit of money in these file coins. So uh, the reason that they wanted to do this, obviously, there's some there's some big money to be won. The biggest part of Amazon is their cloud AWS. Google has a big chunk of their business in this as well, as do the likes of IBM and uh, several other uh, cloud service providers. It is a big ticket, potentially. Uh, we'll see if these guys are able to make it take off. It's a really interesting idea to see how that could be decentralized, maybe how you could make some money out of using your own computer as a uh, cloud provider. So, one thing that you could imagine this being really similar to is like a a BitTorrent. So, you can upload movies or download movies or any other type of um, media. Obviously, we're not advocating any of these things one way or another. And those come from
0: different places. You can imagine paying people to provide that service. That's a really interesting concept, Colin, because we used to live in the world of cloud was Amazon or Microsoft or Oracle or IBM or somebody else who ran a whole bunch of servers in a data center and we paid that one company and all of our data was with that one company. The evolution here is it's distributed, it's in lots of different places, it's running on spare capacity in lots of different potential places, which potentially makes it more resilient, but also at the same time means there has to be some reward there has to be some way to pay for that and this economic model potentially allows for that the other thing that i think is interesting here is um the file coin uh, guys listed on uh, coin list so there was a relationship between the coin list guys and coin list is by the same people who brought you angel list so the the website that has a list of all of the angel investors in the world uh, the guys behind that also launched coin list and coin list has a list of most of the the new tokens and they're doing token issuance through that but it might be worth Throwing it to Stefano because that's our uh, sort of luggerheaded view of the world. Stefano, uh, you wrote a really interesting thought piece on what was happening with uh, Filecoin. Can you take us through just how you view it and uh, and, and what your thoughts are?
2: Uh, yes, of course. So i've been uh, I've been looking at uh, Filecoin and similar projects. You know, there's there's a few already out in the open called uh, Sia and Storage, and there's uh, a few coming to Ethereum itself uh, with one called. Uh, swarm in the future. And so I've been, I've been really interested in this because it's one of the easiest kind of mental applications of decentralized computing, right? So you have decentralized storage. It's very easy to understand instead of giving all your files to Amazon, Dropbox, or whoever that, you know, they can lose them or they can cancel them or they can hold them uh, ransom. You give your files to a decentralized network of hosts that basically keep you know small pieces of your encrypted files. So I've been very interested in the space, and I was really looking forward to the to the Filecoin sale because it, you know it's a it's a very good team. Um, their approach is interesting, albeit you know it's still kind of unproven at this point. Uh, from them, we only have a, a white paper about Filecoin. And what they have done is they have released this IPFS, and uh, you know that's that's great work and it's awesome. But uh, for specifically Filecoin, there there isn't anything yet. And so when they released the, the terms for the token sale, I immediately dug into because I really wanted to participate. And, um, and I understood a few things that I really didn't like about it. If you want, we, we can discuss those in, in detail, but um, that's kind of the gist of it.
0: And that's super helpful, Stefano. I think it'd be really interesting. Just tell me a little bit about the team because IPFS has been around for a little while. And for those unfamiliar with uh, IPFS or interplanetary file system, uh, this is the idea that a file system is something you have on your computer. So you have a way of searching for that Word document that you wrote um, six months ago, and you have files and folders and a way of navigating that that's understandable. The internet doesn't really have a file system. So if I want to find a file on the internet, I know have, have to know precisely where it is, and I have to know its exact location to be able to address it. So to have something that worked like a file system uh, th- that's on one computer that operates across the entire internet means that the internet potentially, wherever a file is, I could search and find it so long as it was using ipfs that's my super layman's understanding of the concept um but stefano i think the team behind that have done a lot of stuff in the past They were connected to the stanford community can you tell me a little bit about the team and juan specifically who i hear great things about yeah
2: i don't i don't personally know juan or uh anyone else on the team i just know a few people that collaborate with them but uh, I've, i've been hearing great things about all of them Um, And, you know, it's certainly a few steps above um, most of the other projects in the the decentralized space where, you know, oftentimes it's people that you've never heard of and and maybe, you know, haven't done much before. Like these are people that actually founded uh, a few companies before and have been in the kind of in the right both academic and technological um, circles for, for a good while. So, you know, like people coming out of Stanford's research centers having done work on the specific things and, and then having founded companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, the other thing is that Protocol Labs, the company also raised uh, a seed round um, a few years ago, I think now um, and was part of Y Combinator in, in the summer of 2014 and, and raised from uh, the likes of Union Square Ventures uh, and Blue Yard. So, you know, like really one of the first seriously impressive and legit
0: teams, um, in in the space. That's hugely significant, Stefano. The Y Combinator, of course, have launched some of the most successful startups, uh, Airbnb amongst them and many others uh, that have gone on to become extremely successful. Uh, Sequoia, Capital, Union Square Ventures and Driesen Horowitz have invested in some of the most famous uh, internet unicorns out there. It's really interesting that the Silicon Valley royalty seems to have gone in hardcore into token sale, which we hadn't really seen before. I guess, uh, Sarah, do you have anything to any viewpoints to add on on sort of the scale of the raise or or who's in who's behind the raise
3: um i think i mean in terms of the scale of the raise it's it's the elephant in the room isn't it it's a huge amount of money 250 it's 150 more than the dow and do we have anywhere have they laid out what they're going to actually spend the money on Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's Based largely on a white paper and, of course, the reputation of the teams, as Stefano has just laid out, but it's it's an awful lot of money. I mean, I completely get the idea of wanting to rearrange the, the internet or redesign the way we actually organise things like they did with IPFS, but it's a large amount of money and I think we all have to remember that it's not... Um, it's it's a debt to the community that have actually raised the money for
0: you. Well, no, this is a really good point. A friend of the show, Richard Burton, did tweet that when you've raised uh, $100 million in an ICO, what you've really got is $100 million of debt to a community to deliver on a thing. Precisely. Uh, and actually, that debt isn't necessarily enforceable. So you have a responsibility to do that. What I do here is that um, what's encouraging about the Filecoin team is they've set a bunch of targets for how the money is released to them and what they have to deliver into terms of doing that. They've also, I understand, been quite thoughtful in terms of how those tokens are issued and then the secondary market around those tokens, uh, which if you look back to the SEC guidance a couple of weeks ago, the two things they said is if you're issuing something that looks a bit like a security, you may need to be registered as a securities issuer. And if you're reselling that, you may need to be registered as, as a reseller of that security. So super interesting text, super interesting uh, concept. And i I'm hearing from the wider investor community and people that are close to the project, a lot like Stefano said, that the team are very talented, but they're also being quite thoughtful in terms of what uh what these tokens mean and what these tokens will allow you to do in the future so there's something to be said for that but stefano did, did you have any broader concerns have you seen anything in this that would say actually it's not all it's not all rose tinted glasses here that there might be some things that could go wrong
2: um well i mean obviously you know in, in such early stage uh, endeavors there's always things that can, can go wrong and you know like uh, my uh, points about the the token sale and the reasons that I did not participate are uh, more relating to how the token sale was structured rather than the project itself. And so in terms of both you know not making it uh, a great investment in my in my side, you know, like risk adjusted. Uh, but also just not being fair to the community, right? So, so my, my issues were mostly around the advisory sale where, you know, $52 million worth of file coins were sold and, uh, at a maximum $0.75 price. So 75 cents. And, you know, in say one or two weeks later, the sale was going to go live with a minimum price of, um, you know, $1.31 but with a maximum total price you know in the teens probably for for the tokens. So um I was just not particularly happy about how the the price was structured because you know there there was uh, no different uh, risk assumption by the different investors and so I do think that you know for example USV and Blueyard that invested a long time ago as their seed investors should obviously get a um a, a massive reward for taking on that amazing risk but the people that invested a few weeks before the token sale should not. And so that, that was one of the issues. They kind of addressed it uh, by averaging out the first hour uh, transactions. And so everyone who participated in the first hour of the sale would have had um, the same price, right? And so it, it wasn't anymore 1.31 for the first person clicking um, all the way up, but the the people in the first hour... And I think they raised around at one hundred and eighty million in the first hour, but um, it, it wasn't really confirmed uh, by them how much they ended up really raising. If you go now on the website, it says that uh, one hundred ninety eight million total um, but it, it doesn't really say if that includes the first fifty two million. So I do think the price was around two point sixty five dollars. Uh, for people that participated in the first hours, and so you know that's uh, that's considerably higher than the 0.75 that people paid, right? 3.5 times higher, and I, I thought that was not particularly reasonable. Um, the other thing, which you know, um, it guests uh, talked talked about, is is just the sheer amount of the sale, and we've seen these from from other projects like Bancor, like Tezos, uh, where you know they they go out and they basically. Leverage the fact that we're in a super hyped, extremely uh, you know exaggerated market where uh, people really want to invest in this new foundational technologies, and they leverage that to to raise the most amount of money possible. Which you know, in a game theory kind of you know setting, kind of makes sense because why would you leave all that money on the table? Um, but in reality, there is absolutely no need for a, a project of this uh, early stage where you know nothing actually exists yet. Um, or at least that we can see.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a credibility question there, Stefano, isn't there about whether or not if you take all the money that was on the table, have you done it for the right reasons? Uh, and I guess there's also a timing question of everybody got to see this amazing deal that some people got two weeks ago and two weeks later you don't get quite the same deal. Um, there is something that just kind of sticks in your craw and in your throat that kind of goes mmm, there's j- just a bit, a bit of a bitter taste, I guess, but there's also an upside in terms of transparency uh, and it does appear that they have been quite transparent about all of that stuff so you've got to give them a lot of credit on that but you can see why an, an investor would look at that and say i'm actually not getting that great a deal because two weeks ago the deal was that and actually um that's that's kind of uh, hard to look at and 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 see think you're getting a good deal the flip side is though um that you know
2: Oh. Yeah, sorry. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I think the transparency thing that you uh, that you mentioned is, is really important. But I do think that it's a given. You know, if you want to raise hundreds of millions of dollars from random people all around the world, like the minimum you should do is being fully transparent. And I do think that that's usually not even enough because uh, here it was fully transparent, but not many people had actually really understood all the token dynamics uh, of the sale. And so when I when I published my analysis, which was just, you know, basically rereading what they had written in their docs, uh, many people were really surprised. Um, and that really stuck with me, meaning that, you know, like uh, we do need transparency, but we also do need people to actually kind of like read into the docs and, and explain it in in simpler terms.
0: That makes complete sense, Stefano. I think you've made some some really, really interesting points there, and I think we'll continue to see this uh, evolve in the coming weeks and months. I do think there's something to be said in terms of the, the team and uh, the concept of IPFS being genuinely intriguing to a large uh, community of people, and I do wonder that uh, people are rushing into token sales and maybe still not understanding what they're getting themselves into. Uh, we find ourselves in interesting, interesting times without question but i've got to move us on because we i'm sure we could spend forever on on filecoin but it's not the only news this week um of course we have to talk about the ethereum creator vitalik buterin and the bitcoin lightning network creator joseph poon teaming up on a project called plasma you can tell boys came up with the name for that project can't you project plasma is a project to improve the scalability for the ethereum protocol now colin have you had a chance to look into this one
1: Excellent. So Plasma is, um, it's first of all, it's built on Ethereum, which we know about. It's a platform that manages some 28 odd billion dollars on, on by market cap, uh, doing smart contracts. We've spoken about it a lot on the show. The next one might be less familiar to our, our listeners. Um, of course, we've heard and talked a lot about Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin, as we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, has a constraint of about tr- seven transactions per second that it can process on, on the network um, or confirm on the network more properly. What some people have proposed is a, a new second layer solution is what they're calling it, called Lightning Network, as the name would would uh, allude to. This is to make transactions move much quicker in higher volumes, uh, somewhere up to a hundred thousand transactions per second. Uh, this was developed by Joseph Poon. Um, the idea is to bring that into Ethereum. Now there is uh, somewhat of a competition between another project called the Raiden Network on Ethereum. Uh, this this moves some of those transactions much quicker in a way that is slightly different than than Raiden because it can process uh, the
0: transaction uh, of the EV itself That makes sense. So netting, as we would know it in financial services, this idea that um, I don't have to do everything um, settling directly one-to-one, I can net it off uh, in the Lightning Network. And so then, uh, so the creator of the Lightning Network concept comes and teams up with uh, Vitalik in Ethereum, and Ethereum is starting to reach some of its own scaling challenges and looks at one specific part of the network, Stefano, and says, uh, whilst there are things we can do to speed up the, the actual transaction side, like uh, like sharding and and uh, the Raiden network, which is their equivalent to Lightning Network, Plasma is also designed to address some kind of the EVM and the smart contract side. If I've understood it correctly, Stefano.
2: Yes, and and that's how I understand it as well, right? Uh, Raiden is more thought of, you know, to scale up uh, just plain Ethereum transactions, like meaning monetary exchange of Ether, uh, while Plasma is more thought of for um, you know computational. Offloading to uh, subchains where, you know, um, you can call them chains or channels, probably better to call them channels, um, which would be, you know, specific to some sort of use case. Um, and we've we've seen one of the first use cases being um, unveiled, and, and that was uh, oh my is Go, um, where uh, Vitalik is also an, an advisor, I think. That's really cool.
3: It's the ICO that finished before it started, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the
0: one. Yeah, that was. And, and I think that's a really great explanation, Stefano, that you give in terms of. Uh, I think it's worth stepping back and saying that a lot of people look at Ethereum and, and the vision behind it as being the world computer. In other words, we have talked previously about a file system for one computer that exists everywhere on the internet. Now, what about being able to do the if this, then do that? If the price of Bitcoin goes up, sell. If the uh, weather if the weather is sunny today then raise the blinds that sort of computational stuff that computational logic has always sat in one place and then told another computer what to do in ethereum it kind of happens everywhere at once this is the idea of a distributed computer but actually that has turned out to be really costly and really inefficient so there are times at which you don't need everybody in the network to run your entire um, bit of logic you can run some of the logic outside of the network and have some of the logic run inside of the network so that not everybody is doing everything just some of the people are doing some of the stuff would that be a, a gross oversimplification that's effective enough
3: yeah, that's my understanding of it. I mean, in terms of uh, reducing the computational complexity, as you say, not having all of the users having to validate all of the transactions as, again, a gross oversimplification. Um, but creating blockchains within blockchains is my understanding, which um, is awesome. And they can have subchains coming off them. So you have a kind of tree of chains and then using the map reduce function, then commit it to the actual root um, blockchain, which greatly reduces the transactional Ooh. fees as well as well as being uh, massively scalable. Uh, Yes,
0: of course, because transaction fees and gas generally had already become a bit of an issue in Ethereum because you've got this open public network in which you have to pay to use that network. If everybody is doing everything, you have to pay a lot to do very basic things. But actually, if you could nest more of that inside of itself and you can make it way more efficient and using MapReduce is one way to do it, then you can sort of dramatically reduce the fees whilst keeping some of the security. Really geeky, really exciting stuff. I mean, um, Colin Stefano, any other key points that we need to pull out of this one? I think other than what it means to me is that people have been talking about Ethereum isn't fast enough for enterprise. This helps it potentially move in that direction. Any, any, any points that you guys would like to add on that?
1: Um, So the one thing I'd like to add in here is just to say, um, this is just another, another to do on their very long list already of things like uh, moving to proof of stake under Casper, uh, delivering things like the Raiden network and state channels. Uh, It's fantastic to have this big vision, want to deliver a lot of things. It's also a big heavy list. And we've been talking about in ICOs in particular, a lot of things have come out, become promises. We need to see more delivery. I love that. There's a ton of innovation coming out of the Ethereum foundation would love to see a ton more delivery as well. Uh, rightly or wrongly, they do get a lot of
0: pushback on big plans and not having everything delivered quite yet. Yeah, there's some great concepts that come out of the innovation, uh, the innovation team, uh, the Ethereum team generally, and Vitalik especially. Um, but a lot of them have been concepts for some time. But then, hey, Ethereum was two weeks away for about a year and a half, and I remember that very well, and then Frontier happened. So something got there. Um, I, I, I guess we will get there eventually. Alrighty, I'm going to move us on to the next story um, because this one kind of links back to the SEC stuff we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So, we talked about the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US coming out and saying if you're operating in the US and you've done something that looks like what the Dow have done, then it looks like you've issued a security which uh, is kind of under their remit. And lo and behold, Bitfinex, who are a, one of the major exchanges that support just about every token, including the Dow, tokens, I believed have come out and said they are going to suspend trading uh, for US clients and they're going to stop onboarding new US clients. Colin, is this a giant surprise to you? I think the only surprise here is that it didn't happen earlier and that we didn't see
1: more exchanges follow suit yet. Um, so Bitfinex, obviously one of the largest Bitcoin and cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, what they've done is they said for US clients effective at the 16th of August, they Spending all ICOs, ERC20 tokens for U.S. clients. Uh, the other thing that they said they're going to do is they're going to stop onboarding new U.S. clients. They came out in their statement, said they don't have very many U.S. clients and those U.S. clients don't bring in enough revenue to justify the regulatory headaches. What's worth mentioning is that um, the U.S. government works a lot outside of the U.S. territory. They are, they have been doing this since the, the 30s, the 40s when they invented rules about um, securities coming out of the financial crisis in the 1920s and uh, the Great Depression after that. So any U.S. citizen abroad or any U.S. person really will be treated very differently than, um, say, a U.K. citizen might be outside of the U.K. Uh, Generally, the U.K. government would not interfere with, uh, let's say, a U.K. citizen in Japan. Uh, The U.S. government likes to get involved not only with its own citizens, as I said, also uh, residents living in the U.S., U.S. companies, or just using the U.S. dollar anywhere for any of these types of transactions. Um So it's an expensive business to do. There are risks. And so Bitfinex has decided to pull back, which is fortunate and unfortunate, which I'm sure everybody else will want to get into. But it is interesting to see that the pennies finally dropped and people have
0: started to look at securities and take regulations more seriously. I guess there's a lot of folks that are really concerned about uh, the SEC coming and, and fining them. And Bitfinex ranking as the third largest exchange by trading volume would definitely be in the sights of the SEC. Um, and they've looked at uh, that you can still buy EOS and um, SAN tokens on there, but not if you're a US customer anymore. So um, there's, there's an argument that says what the SEC are doing are potentially pushing innovation outside of the US. And There's an argument that says, well, what they're doing is forcing the industry to uh, adopt some basic practices to make sure that uh, investors are protected. Where, where do you fall down on this one, Stefano?
2: The, the place that I fall down on it is I really would not want to be a, a regulator here because it's just so complicated to come up with a, a, you know, a smart, effective policy uh, because this is just a brave new world. You know, these assets are immediately uh, issuable they can be exchanged uh, instantly. And more importantly, it's a very global phenomenon. So it's very, very hard to try and kind of like framework it into something that can be regulated. And uh, I do think that the exchanges are going to be the the easiest uh, place for the regulators to kind of like push uh, on compliance uh, because, you know, the exchanges will will have to be based uh, somewhere, and so for for U.S. exchanges, uh, it's going to be harder for foreign exchanges. But we've we're seeing you know uh, Bitfinex kind of um, do that. The the place where the U.S. regulators will be able to probably have the most influence is on the on the global banking system, and so kind of removing banking access to the exchanges anywhere on the world that are not uh, compliant. But uh, what we're seeing. Is that um, sorry? Just the last thing. What we're seeing is also um, a proliferation of decentralized exchanges coming and being developed. And so, at that point, I really have no idea how uh, this can uh,
0: can really play out. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to figure out how it plays out. I mean, the amount of people still to this day that come and ask me, where do I get some of these new token things? And I say, go to an exchange like Bitfinex. There are many others out there. Um, I'll go to CoinMarketCap and, and look up what, what the exchanges are. But it's getting harder and harder to buy these things just as they're getting more and more popular. I mean, Sarah, do you have any um reflections on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess going back to the SEC point, I think uh, part of their guidance was, well, it kind of looks like a security. Um, I mean, the DAO. So they picked on the DAO specifically. And that's because it does kind of look like a security. It was a VC investment fund. Whereas the the Ethereum protocol, the transfer of value, isn't always necessarily linked back to an investment vehicle. So there is that differentiator there. And I think we have to bear in mind that Whilst this is a new technology and a new way of organising things and an innovation, it's conceptually still the same. If you're investing into an investment vehicle, whether that's on the blockchain or not... If you're a U.S. person, you are still going to be regulated, and I mean the what's it, the 1940 Act, which defines a security um, partially self-referentially, which is a bit strange, but mm-hmm. lists things like notes, bonds, treasury, treasury notes, um, options, etc., and also a certificate of interest or participation in a profit-sharing scheme, which is kind of what the Dow was. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, the 1940 Act, presumably it was made around the 1940s. The information has been there all along. So I think we just have to bear in mind that nothing actually has changed... I think we can all sort of think about whether we're actually getting ourselves into an investment vehicle or whether we're actually buying tokens that are for file sharing, for example.
0: Well, so that's the the point I was going to make, is that if you're looking at file sharing, this token allows me to buy space on somebody else's hard drive and stick my files there, in theory, um, and not have to worry about that. But also, people are buying and selling those tokens. So, to Stefano's point, I wouldn't want to be a regulator right now. It's, It's a very hard time to be, especially when one of the largest token sale raisers in history, only recently overtaken, Tezos, um, who we had Arthur and Kathleen Brightman on episode one of Blockchain Insider, if you want to hear from the Tezos team, um, they've just announced that they're launching a $50 million venture fund. So a token sale is launching a venture fund. Uh, how are we feeling about this one, Colin? So Tezos, as we know, um, a few, few months ago raised approximately
1: $230 million in Bitcoin and in Ether. Um, obviously, these are both very volatile assets to have raised. So uh, they decided that they would like to deleverage some of this risk. So they sold some of these Bitcoin and Ether for things like US dollars, gold, real estate, other different types of things that could help them diversify this risk. Learning from what the Ethereum Foundation did in 2014, 2015, when they had raised $19 million in Bitcoin, Bitcoin lost a ton of its value. I think they ended up losing something like $6 million. So a substantial amount going to delivering what they wanted to do. They're rightfully worried about this risk. The other thing they did is they do have to compete with the Ethereum, which has been around, as we said, since 2013 uh, from the beginning on or in 2014, 2015, depending on how you count. And it has a big follower base. So they need to leverage some of this money out to put into projects that want to use the Tezos platform. Uh, depending on how you look at it, it's a good thing. It's a bad thing. It is definitely a new thing. And, um, it's maybe not the most, um, uh, prudent thing to do from a regulatory point of view, which we spoke about regulations. We'll see where the, where the penny drops here. Um, and, and what everybody decides, whether, uh, this is a good strong buy signal or whether
0: this is something that maybe they shouldn't have do. We'll see. And also, you find yourself in a position where you have suddenly raised 232 million, which is probably 210 to 220 million more than you thought you would raise. And you start thinking, I've got to do something useful with this capital. Maybe I can invest in the companies that might use this protocol. Maybe I can do something useful with it to bring token holders value. It makes sense to me. Okay, I'm going to move us on because we're running up against time. Uh, very quickly, Colin, there's a story here about uh, Microsoft goes Ethereum, which um, is, is, sounds like they're going Dutch or something. It's uh, they're splitting, splitting things up. Um, so the mega enterprise and software company Microsoft has released an Ethereum-based protocol called Coco. Um, as we know, Ethereum's been available in the Azure platform for some time. Um, what do we think is happening here? Is this just Microsoft selling more Microsoft with? Some Ethereum over the top of it? Is this genuinely useful? Is it moving into enterprise? Is it all of the above, none of the above?
1: I think this is mostly kind of a step towards the the enterprise Ethereum move that Microsoft has been doing. We know that uh, in 2015, Microsoft became very public with supporting, as you said, um, the Azure platform for Ethereum, uh, doing their blockchain as a service product, as well as um, sponsoring the DevCon in London publicly very supportive of everything like the enterprise ethereum alliance what this is is a framework that they called coco uh, which is short for uh, confidential consortium what they've tried to do is take some of the ideas from jp morgan's ethereum enterprise approach uh, that they called quorum where transactions can be sent between you and i and we don't necessarily tell everybody in the world about them uh, within a private permissioned ethereum blockchain now The idea behind Enterprise Ethereum is that it should be interoperable with the main network. So the question here is whether all of these things can eventually be brought back into the main Ethereum network, or whether it's kind of an investment for not from the point of view of an Ether investor. Um, Obviously, this does go a long way and does interact with some of these
0: other protocols out there. Um, But it is an interesting step in the right direction. So, Sarah, what does this mean for large organizations, big brand like Microsoft, I guess?
3: Uh, yeah, I suppose there's a there's a credibility argument to make, isn't there? And um, the the framework that they've implemented or brought out, I suppose, isn't um, just for Ethereum. It's also um, sort of blockchain agnostic. I suppose it's not actually a blockchain solution. It's a framework around that. So it's also been integrated or well done some work with quorum which is the JP Morgan one and R3's corda as well so it's not just ethereum um but i do think it has been met with some um some smiles and nods of the head i suppose and it is uh, to me it certainly looks like moving into an enterprise kind of thing trying to deal um with a lot of the, the um, issues or challenges across the board like scalability and um, confidentiality as well
0: and one of the questions quite often i get um, when we talk as 11fs to banking clients or to, to other corporates trying to get started in blockchain stuff is uh, there's a lot of hardcore tech out there there's some great explainers in terms of uh you know, like the communities around ethereum and corda and Hyperledger to, to kind of get you started but tools like this that help you really accelerate getting things out of the box with a supplier that you might already have a relationship with as a big company could be particularly particularly helpful. Uh, unfortunately, i got to move on. We're running very low on time in the news. I'm just going to quickly dust over the fact that uh, Jack Dorsey, who was, of course, the founder of Twitter, the founder of Square, says Bitcoin and blockchain are the next big unlock. And, of course, he was asked this whilst he was on a panel and on stage, but Jack Dorsey's always kind of been my uh, weather radar for what's happening in tech. In 2009, he was talking a lot about finance, and finance is going to become a thing in technology, and he was kind of right um in 2013 14 he, if you go back he starts talking about data and deep learning and machine learning a lot more and he was kind of right he seems to always be like he's not necessarily the first to say something but when he says it, it's becoming a thing so i don't know if if there's anything significant here um from from your perspective colin but um i i liked this story for that simple reason how about you
1: Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, In a speech, he talked about people wanting to apply blockchain to everything, uh, which is something that you and I, Simon, have been talking about at least since 2015, if not earlier. It's not necessarily the most current thing, but I think considering that uh, Jack is the CEO of Twitter, which is one of the most important technology companies in the world, as well as the founder of Square, which is one of the biggest fintech companies in the world, the fact that he's sitting up and taking notice
0: of this is a positive sign. Yeah, to me, it means that those founders who had said, ah, it's too early, have kind of come back to it and gone, maybe it's not anymore. And, and I like that. Um, and that thing that you said about people putting a blockchain on it like the amount of conversations where it's it's kind of been oh we've got a new thing can we put a blockchain on it that fad definitely is a thing and definitely is still an issue but i do think the market's matured now to recognizing where you would use some blockchain or dlt technology as part of a bigger picture and what sorts of problems it solves specifically around distributed computing and or around uh, reconciliation or other sorts of problems
3: Mm, yeah it is it is an interesting one I think him um, i mean he 's been very very careful to say that we should be thoughtful about those use cases and it 's absolutely right. You need to make the use cases match the characteristics of the technology. Uh, I did find it quite funny how he seemed to be jumping on the bandwagon and telling not people not to jump on the bandwagon though <laughs> by jumping on the bandwagon himself. But um, you know, he's he's obviously a very successful hey, technologist. Maybe so. he's got a
0: great use case. Who knows? Um, and maybe he's got a way to execute it. And if not, you know, you know where I am, Jack. Give me a call. Uh, alrighty, that's it for the news. But before we move on to the next section, Sarah, where can people find out more about who you are, what you do, anything that's going on?
3: Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Soronimo, which is S-A-R-A-N-I-M-O. Also, quick plug, we're holding a hackathon uh, by we, I mean Capco, uh, the blockchain connector and Clearmatics um, at Capco's headquarters. So we're looking for people to apply for that. You can uh, log on to or jump on hackf.london um and apply but please we are looking for developers only so no recruiters or marketers but mm-hmm. um we'll definitely be doing some marketing ourselves so the exciting part of that is we're going to be able to use some of the features of ethereum much before anyone else so there's two streams i know scalability and privacy so in scalability we're going to be looking at um state channels and also merkle proofs and for privacy, ZK Snarks. Cool. So, heart eyed well, I mean, smiley. A
0: like, that's, that's candy. Like, you're getting it early and you just gotta go to hacketh.london. Well, if you're not based in London, make sure you're at least following on uh, from home. And Stefano, where can people find out more about what you do, sir? Uh,
2: so, yeah, I'm on Twitter too, mostly. So, uh, at Stefano Bernardi, but um, the easiest place probably is uh, tokeneconomy.co. Uh, that's where we uh, run a weekly newsletter discussing all the news. So very much similar to what you guys do um, live on the news.
0: We do it uh, in text. Beautiful. I like the sounds of that. All righty. So we have an interview with Stefano Bernardi coming up. We are back and we have Stefano here once again. Stefano, you have invested in some tokens. Uh, Do you want to take us through uh, a little bit about your organization and why you're investing in tokens specifically?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, what I've done in the token world, I've all done uh, personally. So I run a small uh, angel fund called Mission & Market that has invested in around 52 companies In Silicon Valley, mostly, uh, and that has all been through traditional uh, equity structures. On the side, I've been very interested in in Bitcoin and all sorts of other alternative and decentralized currencies for a good while. I did not buy Bitcoin when it was $0.9 and thought it was a bubble at $2. So uh, there's that. But uh, I've learned from my mistakes and I was fortunate to participate in Ethereum's ICO. And, uh, and that's when kind of like things unfolded for me and I started to realize, you know, the, the potential of this, um, of this new world. And so, uh, after that, I've been participating in a few ICOs and buying some tokens.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. So, yeah, bit of mixed experience. I, I want to ask you, just following on that point, because you've invested in some Silicon Valley companies and you've invested in the token space, you've got an interesting perspective. How are you seeing the difference in the two worldviews of the old winner-takes-all platform versus this this kind of token world we find ourselves in?
2: Yeah, I don't think that we can still kind of draw, um, you know, any comparison or or anything at all. This is really like a new world and it'll, it'll end up being completely different, I think, from the old Silicon Valley world. I think we can even get to the point where the concept of company itself and of a team is going to be completely changed, right? And uh, maybe we'll be able to invest, in, and that's already happening, probably in in teams that are you know uh, completely distributed, and people work maybe a bit on a project and a bit on the other. So everything is much more fluid, where uh, you know someone can participate in, in many different projects via open source contributions, and then can be assigned tokens based on the quality and stars of their GitHub uh, commits. So um, I'm just in a very exploratory phase here. I, I recognize the, the potential and the future, but I don't try to kind of like take drastic um, conclusions just yet.
0: That's a sensible investor if ever I heard one. So then if, if we're talking about sort of the differences between tokens and early stage investments, like what would you say are the major differences as you look at them? You know, you had your old seed A, B round kind of VC investment. What looks different from a, from a token investment from your perspective?
2: Yeah, so the number one thing obviously is that you're not holding equity in a company uh, with all that's implied there, right? So you don't have a stake of the future profits and future liquidity of a company itself you're now actually holding a unit of value of a whole ecosystem so it's a very different thing you basically have absolutely no rights and no control over how the money that you invested is being spent and you know no rights with uh, basically any of the other decisions so there is that big kind of like drawback of uh, not being in control at all um, for now, because you know, there are many governance experiments, uh, being taught out, and, uh, and I do think that we'll see many more structures put in place to govern how tokens and, and cash are going to be spent, uh, by, uh, projects that ICO. But then, you know, the, the other difference is that a token can mean very, very different things based on a project. And so sometimes, it can kind of still be uh you know comparable to equity where you know it's it represents a share of revenues or a share of profits, uh or you know, very much like a normal security. But um oftentimes it could just be you know for uh governance and you know basically holding a token just means that you have a vote into how the community develops and the and the project develops. So I, I don't think we're done exploring what tokens will be used for.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. We don't know what they're going to be used for. They could be used for different things. So what I take from that is understand what the token is, is I guess the first thing an investor has to do. But yet there's real money going into this space, like significant money. I mean, are we we in a bubble?
2: Uh, That's hard to say. It it does seem to me, at least, that um, the correlation between risk and and reward and potential reward is uh, is a bit skewed um, and so uh the the risk that people are buying when buying these tokens uh is absolutely off the charts because most of the time it's just a white paper there's no code there's there's really nothing you know there there's also the question of uh, market manipulation by uh, uh you know whales or other types of investors that can kind of manipulate the price of this tokens because you know now everything is liquid globally and anonymous so that kind of creates a a, a bunch of other uh, situations that we're not used to in traditional private illiquid equity markets
0: so you put out a good tweet the other day about are people putting in the same level of analysis what do you what do you think is is happening do you think there are a lot of Unsophisticated investors pouring money in here, and, and and what what are your evidence points for that?
2: Yeah, so I've, I'm you know in a few Facebook, Telegram, WhatsApp groups uh, of different types of investors that invest in the space, and you know there's your usual kind of VC, maybe young VC that is very interested in the space and uh, thinks it through a bit more, and then there's really you know a whole lot of people that only act. On say you know the name of the project or the website quality or you know a tweet that their account sent or something like that right so absolutely unsophisticated investors um, that for the first time get access to liquid investments of this caliber uh, without having to go through a registered broker and um, and now being able to invest you know small or large amounts of money uh, with an insane amount of volatility. So um I, I do see a lot of people, you know, just investing because of the momentum or, you know, the price. Without really understanding, you know, the the market cap, uh, how it's called for for traditional companies, and saying, you know, oh, this is less than you know five cents. It's super cheap. Why is it so cheap? Let's buy some, right? And then maybe there's you know ten trillion dollars, ten trillion tokens around. Um, so like very very basic things that uh, that are like completely missed, and uh, and no one really is doing any sort of like code review, uh, or you know, implication of their product being out in the world or, or things like that. Then with that being said, there's also a lot of very kind of uh, smart capital being being thrown um, at this project, both in a very active way where, you know, someone invests sizable amounts of money and then goes out and helps the projects, uh, but also for the first time, you know, completely passively.
0: Yeah, we're kind of seeing both, I guess, right? I mean, we're seeing that you can come into the space with almost no knowledge. And traditionally, the argument always was you need to be a sophisticated investor because, Investing early means taking on a lot of risk, and to take a lot of risk, you have to have the time and energy to do the analysis to figure out what risk you're taking. But then the flip side of the argument is this whole piece about well, that means that most retail investors are kind of locked out of growth because growth stage companies are you know run by some very small number of VCs get access to the really big growth stories, and by the time a company goes public, uh, that capital you know, growth has already expired. So you can see both sides of this argument, but then this is why some of the regulation existed, because people could could kind of really get burned if they're not doing their analysis. Some some super interesting thoughts, but kind of how does this play out? Because what, what my big fear is, is that on that democratization of access to capital piece, so many people may end up getting burned by what are good projects that... People could have done analysis on and could have kind of figured out might work or might not work for them, but hadn't done that work. And we end up losing an opportunity here. Do you think tokens are here to stay? Where does this all go?
2: I do think tokens are here to stay. I think there's a few um, interesting implications of all of this. One is that, sure, uh, a lot of people can get burned, but a lot of people can also and have also already made uh, life-changing amounts of money that they couldn't have made otherwise because, you know, maybe there weren't accredited investors and they couldn't have invested in the Facebooks of the world. So there is a very tricky balance of uh, kind of understanding, you know, what to, to limit and, and how to limit it. And again, as we were saying previously in the in the news coverage, you know, it's very, very hard to be a regulator. That being said, I do think that how we will progress in the future is that we will See, uh, the, the ICO event. So, like a, meaning a big public sale only happening when the project is fully built out and fully launched. Uh, and people can kind of, you know, do a, a better analysis as to, you know, the quality of the project and the implications for the world. So, assimilating it a bit to, uh, to an IPO. Um, while the earlier stages of risk are still going to be assumed by professional investors. That's I, at least how I, I think it's going to happen. Uh, but the other thing that, you know, is, um, is true is also that, um, you know, was, I was having uh, lunch with a, a Wall Street investor that turned out, uh, turned into, you know, a token investor. And he was saying something very scary to me, which is, you know, he didn't really care at all about which were good projects underlying the token, because he said that, you know, when the market will crash, uh, then even the good projects tokens will crash with the market. And so he was way more interested in doing like very quick trades and being able to get out in time from both the good tokens and the bad ones. Um, and, um, and that was a bit kind of sad and scary for me.
0: It is sad that there is definitely a speculative bubble, and that speculative capital is in there pushing that bubble, trying to make a a quick dollar off it. But it's the nature of the beast. Um, I think we've seen this before with the dot com bubble. But what seems to be happening here is it's on a much more accelerated time frame, and there is great projects out there. And I share your concern that actually great projects may end up starved of capital, or may end up kind of in real trouble with regulators or, or other things, even though they are great ideas that could. Be transformational for the economy and and really get great projects. So that leads me to think, sort of, what advice do you give to an entrepreneur considering doing a token sale?
2: Oh, so this um, is something that I'm uh, highly uh, debating with myself. Uh, I receive emails from uh, traditional entrepreneurs, meaning you know people that are building kind of like centralized web and mobile and and whatever type startups saying that they want to get in into this ICO and maybe, you know, it's because they, they're not able to raise their, their next round and they see all these projects raising all this money and they, they kind of want to get in. And so I'm, um, at the beginning, I was like, well, no, you should not do it because this is only for decentralized projects where, you know, a cryptographic token is basically at the base of the whole ecosystem. And if you don't have that, it doesn't make any sense. But the amount of interest that, uh, is being shown by, uh, non-crypto entrepreneurs is now being non-negligible for me up to the point where I kind of struggle um, into, sell- into telling them no, because everyone else is going to do it. And so uh, what I'm starting to advise now is that people kind of think about how a token can actually be implemented in, in the ecosystem to make it a, a sound token design, you know, where there actually is a need for the token where it could be, you know, revenue, gen, uh, revenue share or governance or whatever other mechanism, uh, even, you know, trust definition. Um, and, um, but that, you know, it gets complicated very fast with all the, the security, uh, regulations and, and also, you know, just the token economics that are a, a very new field of research.
0: This makes complete sense. I I was talking to a friend of mine who's an investor and sort of said his – things he looks for is you know, does the project sort of build towards a Web3.0 vision and we're going to have to do uh, a show on Web3.0 but this is really this idea of decentralization and Filecoin and IPFS really move in that direction and I guess um, Ethereum and uh, the decentralized computer really move in that direction. And then have people thought through fiduciary, sort of the, the finance and the good governance stuff. Have they thought through are, this, are they a great tech team and do they have real integrity when you meet them as people and do they want to do things the right way Um, i guess that's kind of uh, difficult to figure out and somebody's going to figure out the how to be sec compliant but you have to be pretty smart in order to read where all of that's going from a tech perspective from a finance perspective and from a governance perspective and there aren't many that are going to get all of those right but stefan we are up against it on time my friend stefano thank you for being on blockchain insider
1: thank you for having me So I'm here with Jennifer O'Rourke, Illinois Blockchain Business Liaison for the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity and part of the Illinois Blockchain Initiative.
4: Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Colin.
1: So we came across uh, across each other a little while ago and want to have a discussion around a lot of the the news that's been coming out around the state of Illinois, what you've been doing with blockchain DLT, what your thoughts are on it. Um, First question is, why are you looking at DLT?
4: Yeah, it's a great starting place. So the technology came across our past not very long ago in the grand scheme of things, but in this market, it seems like ages ago because the market's moving so quickly. Um, so about a year and a half ago, our state of Illinois started having some internal conversations and they were amongst a variety of disparate parties. So we were having conversations with our Department of Insurance, our Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, and our IT department. And those conversations turned into a series of exercises around diligence to make sure that we understood the technology and understood the opportunity that the technology would provide and obviously understood the risk that it could as well. At that point in time, the team began to grow and start to bring in some private sector folks to really understand the market opportunities and to better see where the market actually was in this. So with all of these conversations that at that point were truly progressing along from an analysis and, and research and diligence perspective, we could not look all of the feedback that we were getting And all of the results of the research that we were doing, we could not look those results in the eye and not acknowledge that this technology was significant and that although it is a nascent market and the technology still has much to mature into, we could not uh, ignore the opportunity that we knew that it would be presenting. And so when I talk about opportunity, um, You know, and again, to tie this back to the question, why did we get involved? It really comes back to the opportunity. At the end of the day, we are the government. We work to serve our constituents, and our job is to provide services and to make the way in which our constituents engage in these services to make that easier so that we can provide them better and faster so we looked at this technology and we recognized that it had the opportunity to truly do that and deliver these services that we provide better and faster throughout a variety of different areas or industries if you will and with that understanding in mind we could not ignore the the technology so with that we broadened the reach of our uh consortium, if you will, at the state of Illinois here, we included more members and we publicly announced the Illinois Blockchain Initiative in November of last year.
1: That's really forward thinking. I I think for some of our listeners who may be not familiar um, with financial service in the state of Illinois, there are a lot of very large uh, stock exchanges, clearinghouses, banks, insurance companies based in the city of Chicago and, and around the state what other types of industries do you think are um, looking at this and are looking for guidance from the state?
4: Yeah, great question. So first of all, we have an incredible uh, handful of markets that are not only um, you know naturally thriving in Illinois and in Chicago, but will absolutely come to utilize this technology in comprehensive manners. So there is a very organic, a natural fit for Illinois to become a leader in this technology space because of the industries that are so vibrant and robust here. So to the point that you made already, We are known as the birthplace of futures and options. So the derivative industry was born in Chicago and is incredibly strong with companies like the CBOE, CME, and a variety of other innovative exchanges that we've seen pop up in the last couple of years as well. So thinking about how that industry, financial services, will be able to use the technology, whether it is from the infrastructure protocol That the technology provides in terms of back office auditability, transparency, immediacy and security, or whether it actually is cryptocurrency and the trading thereof as applied to our financial services sector. So that's one. You already named it. Here are three others that I'm really excited about, and I absolutely expect to see growing and and really, really thriving um, with the use of this technology in the next few years. We additionally have an incredible amount of insurance companies here. So we have a wonderful home for some of the largest global insurance companies, and because of that, although adjacent to financial services, we do want to call out that insurance is a Another area in terms of claims, um, management, again, immediacy of auditability, reconciliation between multiple partners and disparate partners. This technology will suit and support the insurance industry incredibly well. We also uh, essentially are the center of America when it comes to supply chain. So all roads runways, rivers, and uh, I'm forgetting one. There's a fourth and it's killing me that I've forgotten it. But all of the R's run through Chicago. It is incredibly difficult to um, move any type of uh, supply without moving through Chicago. And that's just naturally the way that this infrastructure has been built out. So when you think about supply chain and you think about Providence, and how providence and being able to track from cradle to grave a product on the chain in a secure fashion when it comes to pharmaceuticals that have regulatory requirements for such tracking, or just when it comes to walking into your local grocery store and thinking that I would really like to understand where this lettuce came from because I just recently read something about an E. coli Uh, callback that I want to make sure doesn't affect the food that I'm about to put on my family's table. So when you think about Providence, when you think about supply chain, that is another core industry that sits perfectly in Chicago because of our geographic placement in the nation. The last one that's important to think about in terms of industries here for the state is um, biomedical. We're incredibly fortunate that we have a very, very mature and also diverse medical system here immediately in the city of Chicago, whether it's academic hospitals, whether it's veterans hospitals, research and development based hospitals. We have all of the different types of uh, medical segments when it comes to research and development here located in Chicago. In our immediate vicinity in the Greater Chicago Lands area, we are very fortunate, again, to call a variety of analytic companies in the biomedical space and also pharmaceutical companies to have them call this home as well. So biomedical is another area that will benefit greatly, again, from Providence when you think about making sure that you know where the testing to the development of a drug and whose hands it moved through before it comes to your doctor, that's something that this technology is going to facilitate Facilitate in a way that is going to support an industry that could truly use the support that this technology will provide. So I think
1: it's really interesting. You brought up such a diverse set of industries that are there, kind of in your backyard of Chicago. And um, one one thing that I've I've heard of from a lot of people is, rightly or wrongly, they see the U.S. in general uh, as not being very open or friendly to cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency startups. Would you characterize that as being a fair statement?
4: Yeah, I would not, actually. So again, let me talk about Illinois first, and then um, we can also talk about the states as well in general. But in terms of Illinois, we are incredibly fortunate to call the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation as members of the Illinois Blockchain Initiative. So, quickly, just to set the table for your listeners here, the Illinois Blockchain Initiative that was initiated last year in November is composed of six bodies. Five of those are state level organizations. So, I come from the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. We also have the Department of Innovation and Technology. And then we start to get really interesting because the next two members are regulators. We have the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation and also the Department of Insurance. Also at a state level, we have the Pollution Control Board, and then we round out our membership at the county level or municipal level with the Cook County Recorder of Deeds. Now, I just wanted to set the table with that so you can see that we've been very thoughtful about who we want set at the table when we have conversations about how we're going to support the community how we're going to integrate the technology into the government, and to your point, how we're going to govern this new technology. So the position that Illinois has taken is that we don't govern technology. What we do is we protect market participants and we protect the integrity of markets. And that those responsibilities sit with the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Again, they're one of our members. They have that seat at the table. And so we are talking to them every single day so that we can better understand how they're thinking about issues such as cryptocurrency, which that is something that does directly apply to market participants and Integrity of markets, the way in which uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technologies is regulated as a technology doesn't fit in that purview. But getting to that point that how do we think about regulating cryptocurrencies, we actually have a very strong and very welcoming position. So when we made the announcement about the Illinois Blockchain Initiative, we made another announcement in tandem. That announcement was that the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, as I said before, our state financial regulator, provided guidance on cryptocurrencies. And their guidance found that with the current state of the Transmitter of Moneys Act, which is Illinois' state-level regulation applied to money movers, with that already being in play they did not find that there was any need for an additional amount of regulation on cryptocurrencies in particular. Now, let me draw out a couple of comparisons because it's easy to just throw a reference to regulation out without kind of couching it in what it actually means to the people that are doing business in our state. So this conclusion, this guidance was not come to um, in any kind of cavalier or light manner. Again, this was part of the diligence that was taken on as we were working in the background before we made the announcement for the Illinois Blockchain Initiative. And what we were very cognizant of is balancing the need to provide market access to this new technology with the need to, again, as I've said before, make sure that we protect the people and the system that we are required to. What we found was when we looked towards some of our other peer states who had uh, navigated this before, we looked in explicitly at New York State. And we found that New York State decided that they needed an additional level of regulation on cryptocurrency atop of their version of Transmitter of Moneys Act. And they created the BIT license. To date, and this was, the bit license was created approximately two years ago, but to date, there have been three companies that have successfully attained the bit license. There have been over three dozen that have left the state. So we wanted to make sure that the market access and, um, you know, the the need to truly understand the intended and unintended implications of regulation and the technology were evaluated as we protected participants and the market itself. And after that diligence was done, the conclusion that we came to was that there was no need for additional regulation. So that guidance was finalized a couple months ago. And now that's something that you can find on IDFPR's website, where they um, explicitly talk, about that right now we don't find a need for any additional amount of regulation. So I know I've gone into great detail with that, but I think that it bears context or it requires context to truly um, flush out the value that it provides Illinoisans here. Again, our purview is going to be the state of Illinois. So we can affect change here. But what we can do to influence change outside of Illinois is we can have conversations with our peer regulators. And we can also have conversations with market participants to help them understand why we've come to the conclusions we have come to and how we can work with them to, to navigate challenges that they may find in their particular industries as it applies to regulation.
1: And how are you working with regulators, not only in, in other states, but maybe at the federal level or maybe outside of the United States, in Canada or the UK, for example?
4: Yeah, so we're having conversations, and I I don't want to make this any more or any less than what it is, but I do want to underline how important it is to simply make sure that you discuss what you are doing to understand how it affects yourself and could affect others as they think about as they're making those same evaluations from their perspective. So we're having conversations at a federal level um, and those conversations are really around uh, what we have done and what the impact or results have been for us. Now our experience thus far has been incredibly positive. so we're sharing that. but we're also sharing you know our lessons learned as we went through this as well to your point, we're having global conversations. Uh, We have been incredibly fortunate to build very strong relationships with participants outside of the States because of the leadership position that Illinois has taken in this space. And so we are pretty regularly speaking to folks in Australia. We're beginning to have conversations with folks in Asia. We do have conversations with market participants and, uh, you know, corporate in Europe regularly, and um, we are in in a point where we're beginning to get some international inbounds from the European community, uh, regulatory community as well. So with this, I think that it's important to underline the value that simply sharing the decision you've made, how you came to that decision, and add the results that you are seeing as it affects your uh, particular market, are incredibly important because most people are simply at the evaluation and di- diligence stage themselves. So that information, albeit, you know, small in the grand scheme of things is incredibly important um, to our peer regulators. I think
1: that's fantastic. And, and are you seeing much response? Are, are there people moving into the state of Illinois from New York or maybe from another country?
4: Uh, Right now, I wouldn't be able to quantify in terms of we've had X amount of companies. But what I will say very, very clearly is that we have an incredible, incredible high amount of inquiries. So I'm looking forward to picking up this conversation with you in three months or six months to be able to start saying we now have X amount of, uh, you know, Illinois-based companies that have come to us. But right now we're in a point where we are answering those questions. We're seeing an incredible amount of interest and um, we're able to point to all the resources that we have right now. So I think You know, another thing to uh, consider as you set the table for this uh, particular business development opportunity for the state of Illinois with regard to this technology is that the market is very nascent. And so we have an incredible amount of businesses that are doing exploration of this right now. And for that reason, I do not expect those businesses to uproot themselves wherever they may be and immediately come to Illinois. But I will say, because of all of the work that we're doing, in not only in the regulatory space, but also in the ecosystem development space, I would say that as the market matures just a slight bit, and those what I would call projects... Actually transition into proof of concepts and pilots. That's when we will begin to see uh, companies that will be moving to Illinois because of the ecosystem that we've built and the regulatory landscape that we provide. So I look forward to catching up in a few months where I can start naming names and counting numbers in that space.
1: We look forward to that. And there's definitely a lot of talent that you have out there in the Chicago area and and the greater state of Illinois as well as the the Upper Midwest there. And I think it's it will be interesting to see how fintech evolves outside of the, the classic centers of London and New York, or maybe from the Silicon Valley as well. I think that there's there's a lot that Chicago and Illinois have to offer, and I'm, I'm glad that you guys are positively engaging. What should people be doing to engage with you if they're interested in either um, setting up a DLT project or business in the state of Illinois or relocating?
4: Yeah, so um- – I would first and foremost direct everyone to um, please reach out to me directly. It quite simply, it's Jennifer at Illinois.gov, and I am here explicitly to welcome you to Illinois, to talk through the resources that we have in this space, and to make sure that uh, your questions and queries and challenges are answered. So please. Come to me because I'm here to help. But um, I also want to make sure that I can uh, direct you to some of the work that we've done, so that your audience can be very, very much aware of, you know, the exceptional work that we're putting out there. And and just quickly, um, I do want to roll through a few of those accomplishments because there, you know, we've talked a fair bit about the regulatory landscape, but what I want to make sure that your audience knows is that we recognize that the technology does not thrive in a silo. And what I mean by that is it is wonderful to see these products being built and coded on the screen, but unless you are able to commercialize the opportunity, then the technology will not be successful. So we see that very, very clearly. In fact, ecosystem development and economic uh, build is the second prong of our strategy. So um, with that being said, we have provided our community a variety of resources. So earlier this year, we partnered with Digital Currency Group and Coin Center, and we invited uh, state-sponsored banks to come to a full-day session to better understand cryptocurrency and how they can bank cryptocurrency companies. We heard very clearly from the market that that was one of the biggest problems that uh, our cryptocurrency companies were having is getting bank accounts. So we found a bespoke solution to that. We went to banks and we provided programming to educate them on that. So we were very happy with that event. We followed that up just a few days later by opening the Chicago Blockchain Center. This is a brick and mortar in Chicago, um, in the center of Chicago, in the loop, where we now have this as a avenue to provide our education and our programming. And through the Chicago Blockchain Ch- Center, we're now um, in the process of hosting a two-day workshop with an incredible um, cryptography professor from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Professor Andrew Miller. And although unfortunately um, for your audience members, uh, depending on when this podcast comes out, this, this workshop may have already passed, but it is certainly full already we're going to have one of the brightest minds in the industry teaching Illinoisans for two days about how to program smart contracts. So that's incredible. Next in September, we're partnered with Hyperledger, and we're going to be hosting the Hackfest for the autumn for Hyperledger in Chicago. Again, this is an incredible opportunity where we're providing very detailed programming support to our local community. Some of the other things that we've done are we've worked with our incredible meetups to make sure that they can leverage the Chicago Blockchain Center, and they now have the resources to bring all of their members in. Um, We've hosted a couple of conferences here where we've had incredible participants flying in from all over the world to talk about the technology. So I I know I've rattled off a nice long laundry list of programming that we've provided the community um, in addition to HackFest. Um, And July just most recently closed out the month of blockchain for us here. Um, But this is really important because we want to make sure that we're supporting all of the needs of the very different disparate parts of the community. And so this is what we're doing um, on the non-regulatory front as well. But all of that being said, I want to make sure that I provide, you know, resources for your audience member so that they can come back um, and look at the work that we're doing. So I'll catch up with you offline and shoot you a couple of websites that point to um, the Illinois Blockchain Initiative, the Chicago Blockchain Center, and again, my contact details.
1: And we'll make sure we get those in the show notes as well.
4: Colin, I'm just going to give you one last teaser because I know we're out of time here. But... When you check out our information on our website, you'll see that we also have a prong of our strategy that's focused on integrating the technology into the government itself. Just two days ago, we made a public announcement with Hashed Health that we will be partnering with them to build out a proof of concept to put health provider registries on a blockchain. We're looking to bring that to production As again, at a proof of concept size, but we're looking to bring that to production in a few short months. So, Colin, when we do catch up again next, I'm really looking forward to telling you about all the movement that we've had for companies coming to our state to leverage our incredible resources. But we'll also have to touch in on the results of that pilot and the other four that we have on our roadmap.
1: Well, that that is fantastic. So, I guess everybody out there that's been saying, "When's this going to be real? Oh, it's never going to happen in the United States. They're not friendly." Uh, take a look at Chicago and the state of Illinois. There's a lot going on. It's not just regulation. You're really, really doing a lot to support the community. Uh, It's fantastic to see. And thank you very much for telling us all about it. We look forward to having you back in a few months to tell us about all the successes.
4: Okay, thanks a lot.
0: A big thank you to all of our guests today. And thank you once again for listening. Uh, Before we disappear, I want you to know that we're going to be at Blockchain Live on the 20th of September at the Brewery in London. I'll be chairing the main stage, so you've got to be there. And it does promise to be a fantastic event with an agenda packed full of amazing and insightful speakers. If you want to join us there, Blockchain Insider listeners can get 50% off tickets So those of you that are asking me for tickets, I'm knowing if you're going to listen to the show, if uh, if you've got the 50% off or not, you use the discount code M11FS. That's M11FS. And if you want to know more about the stories discussed in today's show, head over to fintechinsidernews.com. That's fintechinsidernews.com, where you can find all the latest industry news stories and trends, fintechinsidernews.com, fintechinsidernews.com thank you for listening. Please tell everyone you know to leave us a review. And if you don't want to leave a review, send me an email. I'm simon at 11fs.com and tell me why you didn't want to leave me a review. Why? Why? And uh, I look forward to hearing from you next week. Bye for now.